Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 205. This episode is dedicated in honor of Brena Bas Chana. Please bear in mind that this program is a free program. A lot of work goes into it. So we rely on community sponsorship to be able to continue and do all this work. So I invite you to partner with us in helping support these programs by going to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. And I appreciate it very much in the name of myself, in the name of our team, in the name of all the people that benefit from this program. So this program is dedicated in honor of Brena Baschana. And being that we are now in the week of uh, Parshas Vayikra, and uh, this coming Shabbos, we'll read Parshas Vayikra, we'll also read Parshas HaChedesh, and also Rishchedesh Nisan. So it has many different uh, qualities, in addition to some significant dates that are also in the middle of this week, namely the 25th of Adar, the birthday of the Rebetzin, Chaim Mushke, and the 27th of Adar, a very different note, the sad day when um, in Tafshinun Beis, 26 years ago, the Rebbe had a stroke. So we'll talk about that as well. Let's start with Pasha uh, Bayikra and go into the Shchedish Nisan and Pasha Sachedish. So, of course, Bayikra is the beginning of the third book of the Torah. We just finished Vayakab Kudai, book two, the book of Exodus, the book of Shemois. And indeed, in chronological order, as last book concludes, that's how we begin this week. What is the conclusion last week? We read the last four chapters, actually, we were reading about the command and then the actual building of the sanctuary, of the Mishkan. And last week's Pasha Pekudah, we talk about exactly what happened. And Anresh Chedesh Nisan was when they concluded and the Mishkan began the beginning, the opening of the Mishkan, Chedesh Nisan. Then from right from under Pekudah, what is the last Pasuk in last week's chapter? It says that Moshe could not enter the oil made because the Onan Hashem, the cloud of glory, the God's divine cloud covered the Mishkan and Moshe la Yochel Moshe to enter. Then comes the next, this week's parsha begins, Vayikud al Meshe. Shem called to Meshe. So the Kutateta of the Alta Rebbe on this parsha, he touches upon this and discusses this at length in a very fascinating way. Here you have a real Chassidus applied element that can be applied to each one of us, and he actually applies it himself, the Alta Rebbe, in a very specific way. He asks a few questions. He says, First of all, why does it say Vayikra al Mesha? You're missing the name. Vayikra al Mesha means call to Mesha. Doesn't say Hashem. Doesn't say any name. Doesn't say Vayikra Hashem al Mesha. It says Vayikra al Mesha. Doesn't say Mihu Akeda. Who is the caller? Secondly, the Aleph in Vayikra is a small Aleph. Vayikra includes with an Aleph, a letter, to Aleph Ze'era, which means a small Aleph in the Sefer Teda. And then Al Tareb explains that this Pasuk follows what happened in the last chapter, as I just mentioned. Why was Moshe not able to enter the Mishkan? Because the Gilead of Elokus, the divine revelation, was so intense that it was impossible for a human being to be able to enter there because of the intensity. As he calls it, Yoshas Cheshach Sisrei, God considers darkness his hiding place. Why? Because Elokus, of the divine, the, the essence of the divine, is beyond any form of revelation. And that's what was the situation. The cloud represents Yashash Cheshach Sisri. Think of a cloud that covers the whole area and no one could enter. Vayikra al was a special call that came from the Atzim. 
If it would have come from Hashem, from the name God, or from the name Elikim, or from any other name, that's already not entering that place where Moshe cannot enter. So you needed a call from a Hamshacha, a type of a Susa Delel, that God called Moshe Rabbeinu, from the Etzim. That's why it doesn't say a name, Vayikrel Moshe. The Etzim itself, that's higher than any form of name, called Moshe. And through Moshe's Bittl, which is the olive Za'ira, the small olive represents the Bittl. Through that Bittl, he was able to enter into the place that a moment before he was unable to enter. So basically, we're talking about the first entry into the Mishkan where the God is resting on this earth in the Mishkan, in the sanctuary. And Moshe Rabbeinu enters there, Anish Chedesh Nisan. And the rest of Ayikra will basically be the laws that we learn all about what was said on Rosh Chedesh Nisan the first day when the Mishkan was open for business, so to speak, when Moshe first entered. Then we'd have the seven, the Chanukah the, HaMishkan the, the until Vayi Bayim HaShmini in two chapters from now on the eighth day, which is Rosh Chedesh Nisan actually, that that's when after the education and the training of the, the Kahanim, that's when they will begin their service. But Mesha began listening and hearing God's laws already before that. So essentially we have here is Vayikra al-Mesha coming from the highest levels, opening up a door to human being being able to, in this case Mesha being able to connect not just to the Giluim and revelations of the divine, but to the essence itself. And requires the Bitl. The Alter Rebbe continues and says, Atayda initzchis, Atayda is eternal. And you have to say that this message is not just one that happened back then, but it's one that's happening right now. Because each of us has a Moshe within us. Each of us, therefore, has the capacity to have the bitl, the, the humility that Moshe Rabbeinu had that allows us to be called and summoned by Vayikura, by the highest levels of the divine, to enter a place where a human being naturally cannot enter on his own. And that's through Limadat Teda. When a person learns Teda's Moshe, through Teda's Meshi, he's able to connect to the divine that's higher than what a human being can reach on its own. And he elaborates the details of it. But applying it to our personal lives, to translate it into our personal lives, let's just talk an example from relationships with each other. When two people are friends, how deep is their relationship? How deep can they connect with each other? So, so you know, there's shallow and superficial relationships where two people, either they're doing business together or it's a casual relationship, so they connect on a certain level. A deeper connection is you connect intellectually, you can connect emotionally. You can, well, let's start from the bottom up. You can collect, connect on a nefesh level, which is basically physically. What does that mean? There's a business, a business transaction or just a friendly chat. You can collect, connect on a more emotional level, ruach, which is more emotional connection. There's a friendship, there's affection. Obviously, this is all more intense when it comes to spouses. And then there's connecting on an intellectual level. But still, you cannot call that the etzim of the person's connecting with the etzim of the other person. You say, yes, it's more than just superficial because there is some commonality, there's some camaraderie, a certain kinship, kindred spirits, but the question is how deep it goes. We know that a human being, however, has more than just action, basically biological and emotional and cognitive faculties. We also have the superconscious which I specifically use that word, not unconscious or subconscious, because it is superconscious, higher than conscious, from which the consciousness derived. Sub and un seems to be like the sub is like a basement. It's like beneath the consciousness. Here we're talking, it is indeed beneath, but it really precedes it. So superconsciousness, and when, when people connect on a deeper level, there they can start connecting even in places that we would call beyond the regular revelatory 
faculties. Deep connections, when you say, when two people really bond, they bond more than just that they have intellectual interests and emotional interests and physical interests, that material interests that they have in common, but they start connecting on a soul level. And that can go all the way to the etzim of the neshama, when, whether it's soulmates or even very deep friends, where you have that type of connection that goes all the way to the essence. I'm just trying to give an example of something which would be more than just on a basic level. The same thing is in our relationship with the divine. You could have a relationship on a more basic level. God, for example, provides. He provides us with life, with health, with parnasa, with livelihood, with food, with sustenance, and so on. And a relationship is you thank him, and therefore you, and you serve him, and you, and you uh, comply to the request that God makes of us. That's a relationship, what we would call mamalakalam. You can have a deeper relationship with Kabbalah sale, even to the point of Mesiris Nefesh. What is that? That, that more than just a logical and rational relationship, that you connect. Even more than just the, the, the basic. However, it's still not necessarily an etzim level. Etzim level is a connection that goes beyond any form of expression or definition. It's a fundamental core defin- connection like we have a parent to a child or a child to a parent. An ava atzmis, we call it. What's an ava atzmis? It's not bound by any particular definition and it's not conditional by any particular need. It connects fundamentally at the core level. So in our relationship with the divine, as in our relationship with each other through the neshamas, we, the expectation is to reach not just a place of revelation, but even a place vayikra or Maisha, a place with vayikra without a name, without even a name havaya, and that allows us to then enter places that on, on, on its own would be considered an intimate, or place that is beyond revelation. It's dark, but it's a darkness that's beyond revelation. But we can connect and even the express the inexpressible. It goes to show how deep a person can actually reach in connecting with another. The Rebbe speaks about this also with Aves Yisrael. There's Aves Yisrael, there's Agdus Yisrael, a unity that connects not just because we're all part of one organism, as the Yerushalmi says, but it's because we have a fundamental connection on a soul level to Av Echas Lekulona, that in the source we're all bound as one. And that's a oneness that's more deeper than just a harmony of di- amidst diversity. So in our personal lives, really, it comes down to how deep we can reach. So Vayikra is a new chapter in Teda begins, a new chapter in our lives, in the journey. Teda Nitzchi is the eternity of Teda. And the journey now is after everything we've learned before, which is the base, but Eshi is basically the Sefer of the Ovis, which as Chassidus explains, is aligning ourselves with the source of creation, with Shedesh HaNevroim. As best as we can be, a human being can be, without a call from above. So the Ovis, we're able to reach align the universe to the way the maker, the way the creator wanted it to be. By Matan Teda was a Eir Chodosh. After Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, Shmei, Sefer Shmei, leading to Matan Teda, was a new revelation that the others did not have. Shmi Havaya They did not have Shem Havaya. What did that accomplish? That now you can transform the material world and turn it into a sacred space. Something that before there was exhaled that did not allow that the heavens were heavens, that which was above remained above, that which was below. You could not turn matter into energy, matter into spirit. And now, after Matan Teda, a new Chodesh, but that came from above. Vayedid Hashem, God came down, and Moshe went up. So there's a certain new experience, which would ultimately be the beginning of what will come when the Geul of Mashiach comes. 
But the Matmatan Teda was still a place that still need. that was the mandate was given, it still needed to be consummated, and it was consummated by the Mishkan. When Moshe built a Mishkan, a physical abode, made of gold, silver, and copper, and all the other materials that he could gather from the, from the Jews, material things, and built a physical temple, that's when Matan Teda came to fruition, because then we really had a physical space on earth that became Veshachanti Besechim, a place for the God to reside. That was not done until that point. The others didn't do that, and even by Mount Teda, it didn't happen. Mount Teda, once they left Mount Sinai, the Sinai remained, was, was once, it still remained a mundane place. Here, finally, Kedusha began to permeate existence, which would, of course would even intensify with the buildings of the Temple, Temple 1, Temple 2, and permanently so, through all the work that we do, we did through the thousands of years, and the third base I made, was Mashiach's coming. So it's all a process. So what does the Mishkan do? The Mishkan brings that type of revelation down below. But as long as the Mishkan has such a revelation, Moshe can't enter. That's why you need a Vayikra, a call. That call brought a new Amshocha Atzmis even higher than Havaya by Matan Teira. Anoichi Hashem Alekecha. The Anoichi, which is Le'i Sramiz, Le'i B'Shumais, Le'i B'Shum Anoichi says is not hinted to even in a letter or in any, even, even in, a, in, a, uh, in a line. Even in a Kreitz is the, 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 the point at the top of a Yud even. Just a point, nothing. It could, doesn't have any place to express. And even that non-expression, which of Etzem, can now become part of our lives. That means that we're able to reach places that are far beyond the structure of our existence, even before, beyond Seva of Kalam and even the transcendence. Transcending even transcendence and bringing that down in the Mishkan because that's what Moshe was in El Mai. That's where he heard the voice and that's where God spoke with him. And each of us achieves in a, more obviously in a Zoyer Ampin way, in a far more, a lesser way, but in a diminished way, but a microcosm of that because of the Moshe due to the merit of the Moshe within each of us. And in practical language, it simply means that we are not just creatures of this world that can only accomplish things that our mind and our hearts set our mind and our heart to. We can also reach places of transcendence, but we can also reach places that are even deeper than that. That means the possibilities are unlimited. You can reach unlimited possibilities, no matter what you're in, going through in life, whether it's a difficulty, even when it's not difficult, there's this, it's beyond the sky is the limit. And you can turn that into something that is transformed into your personal life. So with the, the power that that gives us, Vayikra gives you, is that it calls us and enables, it's like a calling, a call to each one of us, that to your soul, to your being, to are you fulfilling your mission in this world? And the mission is not just to survive. The mission is not just to live up to the fact that you're sustained and you are healthy and, and all the blessings that come to our lives, but it's to reach places that are beyond even human. The ability for a human being to go beyond the human, to do what is divine, and all the way to the deepest levels of the divine, and turn that into something that's a viable, a viable tool that, that transforms our physical lives in this world. That just gives a whole other take on what a human being is capable of and what we are ultimately sent to do to turn this world into a dirabetachtenim, a mishkin, not just in one area, but the whole world becomes a divine home. Rishchidosh Nisan, as I just explained, is connected. I, 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 I know that may be confusing because I mentioned Vayikra is Rishchidosh. It's not Rishchidosh, of course, is the day when the Yemashmini, when they're not less than 
But Rosh Chedesh is connected to that because it's beginning of the process that led to Rosh Chedesh Nisan. So of course this Shabbos, all this is emphasized even more so. Rosh Chedesh Nisan is HaChedesh Hazel Lachem, the new moon, Tavar Chodesh. Again, Nunis, Chidush. HaChedesh comes from the word Nunis. The sun is a consistent flow and more powerful in revelation. But the Levana reaches, the Levana is like the Aleph Za'eda, the small Aleph, it's Mamoyer HaKotten. It's the small luminary. Yaakov Hu HaKotten, David Hu HaKotten. The smallness, but that smallness, like the small letter Aleph, is the keli, is the container to reach the greatest expanses. Because when you are filled with Giluyim, you really can't be a container to the Etzim. So Rishchidosh Nisan, which is the month, the father, the, the, the new year of all months, to all the months of the year is when, is when Mesha was standing in Mitzrayim and Hashem showed him this is the new moon that you shall bless every month and this is the Jewish people are compared to they too will experience renewal first coming out of Egypt a new nation the dafka through the helm and the darkness in the negative sense, led them to become a completely new people that led them to, to Sinai, that led them to build the Mishkan. So all of this translates in our personal lives a element of renewal, that life is not just more of the same. It's not like some cynics say, the more, the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. There's a constant renewal, constant change, and more importantly, the ability to get to places that are beyond any, anything. So no person should ever feel they're a victim of circumstances or even a product of circumstances. We are not. We have the capacity to reach the deepest and highest levels. So whatever situation you're in right now, think of it, you have now the ability for a complete renewal, starting with this period in time by Yikra, the Sefer of Yikra, which corresponds this year with Rishchidosh Nisan. Let's share a few words about the two days this week, even though they're very antithetical. On one hand, the 25th of Adar, a birthday. Of, of none less than the Rebetzin Chaimushka, Rebetzin Chaimushka, and the birthday, and what did the Rebbe do in honor of her birthday? He gave her the greatest birthday gift of all, that that year, Tavshim Emches, which is um, 30 years ago, this week, when uh, it was after Chav Shvat, the passing of the Rebetzin, on Chav Shvat, so literally a month later, Chav Adar, her birthday, the Rebbe gave the Rebetzin the gift of making birthdays, something that every person should embrace as a special day, even though it was always known to be a special day, but it was done more discreetly and quietly. The Rebbe already began talking about birthdays before, obviously, 30 years ago. But 30 years ago, the Rebbe announced it as a campaign that, and with directives that he spoke about. Other than, than Pesach and Achenshah Pesach came out already published how we should celebrate our birthdays through making fabrengens, hachlotas tevis, adding and learning. Obviously, the Tehillim we say, and davening, mils chasodim, all the elements that a birthday is the day that God puts you on this earth. The beginning of your farananchai, the Rebbe says. Or as, as I like to phrase it in English, birth is God saying, you matter. Birth is God saying, I need you in this world. You are now coming to this world to fulfill a mission that you and only you can accomplish. And the Rebbe's, Rebbe's personal birthday became the launch pad that the Rebbe launched this Mifza of Vimeleders for all of us. So obviously, now, obviously something practical thing we all can embrace, but interestingly as well, Chalfei Adar is actually the birthday of the world as well. There are two opinions, Rabbi Lazar and Rabbi Yeshua. When was the world created? Bechalfei Elul? 
which would mean that Chofei Adar would be the first day, and then Rosh Chodesh Nisan would be the creation of Adam and Chava, sixth day of creation. Or B'chafael, and then Rosh Hashanah, the Aleph Tishrei, the first of Tishrei, is the creation of Adam Chava. So we know we honor Rosh Hashanah, but we also honor Rosh Chedesh Nisan. As a matter of fact, in Tesfis and Kisfi Arizal, the Rebbe explains, explains it's not really a Machlekes. Because one is the creation of the world in Machshove, in God's thought, and one is creation, an actual creation. It's like an architect first has a vision and a plan, and then he implements it. So the truth is they're both Rosh Hashanahs. The Rosh Hashanah, of, of course, of Maise is in Tishrei. But Chafei Adar also has an element of Rosh Hashanah to it, which is a birthday, the birthday of the world, the universe, and of course leading to the birthday of each human being, because that's when we honor Zayayim Tchilis Masecha, because the human being is the crown jewel of creation. So it all rounds out. As a, so as far as birthdays, basically, in other words, not just honoring birthdays, but honoring our lives, the dignity and indispensability and the majesty of your unique and glorious journey. With all the ups and downs and all the twists and turns, it's a journey that was chosen for you, with you, of course, playing a key role, meaning you and I and each one of us, of using the resources we were blessed with and following the divine providence we were given to make sure to make the right choices, that all that be used in the most positive and most powerful way whether it's positive experiences, obviously, but even experiences that may appear negative should also be transformed and seen as stepping stones to creating a greater light in this world and building a mishkin. A mishkin, within each one of us that our beings, our bodies, our beings, our lives become a sanctuary, a divine sanctuary, and doing our best to create the same in our homes as much as possible to turn that into a divine dwelling. Of course, when we all do this collectively, we'll come the Geula and the entire world will radiate with that type of a beautiful home and dwelling place for the divine in a permanent way where the etzem can feel when you're at home, you feel your whole being can be is comfortable. In the street or in a business or at work, it's not all of you. You have to put on different masks. You have to adjust. You have your defenses up. At home, as Chassidus explains, a person is completely comfortable. That's what a healthy home is supposed to be like. And the same thing for the divine, that etzem, atzmos, the God, in full glory can feel completely comfortable, does not have to conceal himself, does not have to in any way limit himself because it's completely a place that's been completely prepared that he can come and not just be a guest but a permanent uh, fixture in, in existence. So even though God is here, but from our, in our terms, in our physical world and from our perspective to also create that type of environment. Now we have Chavzayin Adir which, as I said, is antithetical. doesn't seem to have any, uh, any um, positive element to it. On that night, Monday night, the Rebbe coming back, came, the oil had a stroke, which caused Begashmi, the Rebbe, not to speak to us till now, and not to be able to use his right hand, and all the limitations that it caused the whole Helen Behester. And yet we were trained to understand that even when it's Yoshes Cheshach Sisrei, when it's complete darkness and even complete silence, there cannot be that it's complete negative. There has to be something that we take out of that. So there's the famous Sikha that Rebbe spoke weeks before, Chavzai, another six weeks before, on Beis, on Gimel Shvat, where he spoke about a stroke, spoke about Moshe Rabbeinu, spoke about the Friedrich Rebbe being higher than speech, yet it's still a concealment. That Dibur Hayyabagolos that Rebbe brought then from the Zayhar. The Dibur was in Golos. Terrible. But it's our role at times like that to become the mouthpiece, like Aaron, 
Yilaficha, the Aden was the mouthpiece to be to repeat what we heard from the Rebbe, to become channels and expressors of the teachings and the directives that we heard from the Rebbe. So of course we want the Rebbe to speak himself, but for whatever reason the plan is, it has to be some Aveda Bekeyachasme, something coming from us. So though I am not going to even begin to try to explain Chavzainod because I have no clue God's deeper and mysterious plans. But to say we lay down and die, God forbid, absolutely not. That's not how we were trained. We were taught no matter what the situation is, we have to figure out not why it happened, but what we do about it. And what we do about it is we intensify because now we have to, kavyachal, so to speak, supplement those words that we're not hearing coming straight from the Rebbe's mouth by doing what? By being the mouthpieces, being the arms and legs, being the channels, being the mishkan. Like an achsan, like uh, to, uh, that the, the Mishkan to carry these messages and these directives to every person we meet and in a language that is, is, is relevant and palatable and acceptable in ways that people can actually appreciate, which is very much the essence of why we do this with My Life Chassidus Applied. It's exactly that to take the Chassidus of the Rabbeim, specifically through the lens of the Rebbe, and turn it into a viable and a relevant and a living and dynamic and exciting blueprint, skills of dealing with every issue we have in our lives. So with that, let me speak a little about the contest. The contest now has gone through tier one of judging, which means all the papers and all the essays have been looked at by the judges, and they have now turned the top 50 or 60 essays are now being, have been, are being selected. And that will go through now a second tier, a second judging process, which will determine the top winners. So stay tuned. And again, I will commend you all and thank you so much for participating in it. It's all very exciting. I've heard from a number of judges how they were enjoying reading and seeing the effort that people really invested in turning Chassidus into a, a solution and a response to contemporary challenges and issues. So short note about that. I might as well use this opportunity to also give you the ability to go to my life, uh, I'm sorry, meaningfullife.com slash my life, where you can find the place where you can you can submit any question, comment, and completely anonymously, as well as find all the archives of the previous 204 episodes. They're all time-stamped in the YouTube part. So you have to click on the video on the YouTube when it says YouTube, and there you'll find them all time-stamped, which means you can go straight to the subject you're interested in. You can also search, obviously, by subject. You can also read there the three, the three years of essays that were already submitted in the past three years. So it's a full, rich resource for each one of you to use. And again, I say it's all free, but we really appreciate if you can be partnered with us in sponsoring at any level and helping us continue to make this grow, make it expand its reach and its impact. With that, let us go to some questions. I'm very apropos. The first question we're going to deal with is, oh, before I go to the questions, I always forget this, is let me give you some cross-referencing to previous episodes. Firstly, about Pasha Vayikran Shchedesh Nissen, I refer you to episode 60 and 156. This again is a topic, these topics that were already addressed, and now with so many episodes, obviously there's plenty of cross referencing. And regarding the 25th of other and the 27th of other, I refer you to episode 7 and 155. Good. Now let's go to the first question that is a new question that came in. What will the world look like when Mashiach comes? And here's how the writer phrases it. We will see Hashem when Mashiach comes. Or will we, will we see Hashem when Mashiach comes? Or only His holiness and glory? Thank you. 
So you open up a chapter 36 in Tanya, and he speaks about this very directly. He speaks exactly what I was discussing earlier about Matan Teda, that there was already a revelation at Matan Teda, but it was me'ain, only a taste of what will be when Mashiach comes, and will be in a permanent level and in a higher level. And he brings there, the glory of God, will be revealed, and all flesh will see it. He brings eye to eye, there will no longer be any garment that will conceal, you will see merech, you will see your master. The Rebbe brings from his father, from the Rebbe's, Rabbi Levi Yitzchok's, Tanya explains the different reasons for the different psukim. But the second half of Tanya, Perek talks about it, brings quite a number of verses, and there are more in Tanakh, especially in the book of Yeshaya, that talk about everyone will know him. So we have plenty of verses that demonstrate and reflect that, the, that Mashiach comes, there'll be divine revelation, not just revelation, not just the glory, but even the etzem, as I discussed earlier from Vayikra. But what does that mean in simple English? What does that mean to see the divine? Which I think is critical for us to be able to, to uh, critical for us to address because there's no way you can prepare for the Gula as the Rebbe gave us those marching orders and do anything about it if you don't have a clue what it's going to look like. You can't prepare for something. For example, everything Gedushin is boy It needs a preparation. Misha Shabbos, the one who works that of Shabbos will have for Shabbos. What does that mean? You know what you need for Shabbos. You need certain foods. You may need other things. Since you know what Shabbos is necessary, you know what to do on Friday or on Thursday or all the way back to Sunday. If you don't know what Shabbos is necessary, how could you prepare? So how does one prepare for the Gula? So the Rebbe told us to learn about it, to visualize it, and also to in, in actualize it as much as we can in our personal lives. Famous story with Samach Tzedek, that he would talk a lot about the Gula. And relative to then, it was a lot. They asked, why are you talking about the Gula? It's so far from us, so beyond us. So the Samach Tzedek said, due to the aha. What's the aha? So he said, imagine somebody listening to a conversation from behind a wall. You can't hear every word, so you hear uh, random words. You can't make sense of it. Then the two people come out of the room and they share with you what they spoke about. And you say, aha, now I understand this word, that word, because you heard what they talk about. Now you understand those words. So Tzamech Sadiq said, what we have to do today is speak about it. And we may not fully comprehend it, but when Mashiach comes, it won't be a completely foreign idea. They say, aha, now I know what means Gilead Lekus, because I talked about it, I learned about it, I learned the Chassidus about it. So this is how, it, but the more you get an understanding of what the Gaul is going to look like, the more you can then say, okay, let me get at least that state of mind, maybe even emotionally, and maybe even an action. So I want to give two examples of what it will like, and I think it's as in vital that each of us are able to visualize this. You know, wherever you live, what would the street look like? Will there be birds? Will people go to work? So two examples that I, that I will give, that's just two of many. One is, a letter from the Rebbe, and I don't have it in front of me, I probably quoted it in the past, it's an Igris Kedish, where the Rebbe is writing to an owner of a dry cleaners of all things. The Rebbe says, everything is divine providence. Since you work in a place of cleaning garments, there has to be a lesson in life. What's the lesson in life? The Rebbe says, you wear a garment, you buy a new garment, you wear it once, twice, three times, four times, after a while it gets wrinkled, soiled, stained, and at some point you can't wear it anymore. Or so one would think. No, comes the concept of cleaner. And what does the cleaner do? You give the garment to cleaners. 
they submerge it in water. And not just plain water, cold water, but warm water. And then mix it with different chemicals to get rid of the smudges and the stains and, the, and all the other uh, blemishes and so on. Then you take it out and you put it under, a, you dry it and put it under a heavy press. And voila, you have like a new garment. And you can do this process many times through the life of the garment. What's the, what's the nimshal, the moral, the lesson? The lesson is that the neshamish and nesata be tahedahi. The soul you've given me, we say every morning, every one of us, men, women, and children, the soul you give me is pure. We say it every morning. But then life takes over. We need protection. Life breaks people. Life soils us, jades us, and can cause us to have also stains. That's what life is about. So one would think, you know what? It's a one-way street. You can only go from purity to impurity. No, the lesson is you take the neshama and you submerge it in water. Ain't mayim elatera. And not just regular water, cold water, warm water. A sign of chayis and pnimius chemimus, fadamkait. And you mix chemicals into it. And chemical, each chemical represents another mitzvah. The mitzvahs clean out the stains. And then you put it under a press, kabbalah sale. The sense that you are on a mission. You're on a calling. You answer to a higher authority. Type of pressure, but good pressure. That creates a refreshed neshamash and nesata a fresh garment, fresh soul. And you can do this many times through your life, this process. What's my, why am I bringing this example? This is an example of how the world will be when Mashiach comes. There will be cleaners. Why not? At least in the earlier kufis, earlier stages, there'll be cleaners. But you won't see a cleaner simply as I'm giving my garments. A cleaner will be, you'll see, the whole point of cleaning is to show us how this is just another muscle for Elokus to understand godliness. So today, when we look at everything in our lives, whether it's cleaners, whether it's financial services, whether it's other types of manufacturers or other businesses, every one of them can be seen as an end in itself or it's a means in the words of the Rambam, which means the entire business of the world, the entire business of the world, the work of the world will be not materialism as an end in itself to make money and be successful, but as a means to know God. And in the fullest sense, that the divine knowledge will fill the world as the, as the waters cover the sea. So today, when we experience that, when we look at things and see what's the divine message in this, what is the divine providence in this, you are doing a taste of Mashiach as it is in our time today. And the more we do that, the more we prepare the world to be in that place because we're our, our perspectives, our mindsets, and as I said, hopefully our heart sets as well, our emotions, and our actions are guided in that way. The second example I wanted to give was, I, gave, was, I once gave a talk at a medical conference. I'm not a doctor, nor the son of a doctor, so what am I doing at a medical conference? They asked me to give a talk about the future of medicine according to Judaism. What will it be like? So I spoke. I spoke that when Mashiach comes in the future, there will be the eradication of disease and illness and death. Why? And I explained. Without going into the whole speech, I explained simple. It says in the Torah that because Chetetzadah, that's why man died. It says, the day you will eat from it, that you'll die. What's the connection? Because why should a soul and body ever have to separate? A soul is not like, runs out of energy. It's not like an energy plant. It's a divine source of energy. So why can't the soul continue to energize a body forever and ever? 
The problem is not inside the soul. The problem is inside the body. Think of a, a cup of water. The water can remain in the cup forever if it were not for evaporation. But if the cup gets severed or in some way punctured, then the water is going to ultimately seep out. By eating from the Das, without going into all the details, they severed the physical world from it being a pure container, a seamless container to the energy within it. So with time, illness, infection, disease would take over and ultimately lead to death. So death is the process, is really a result of a punctured physical body and a punctured physical universe that's not fully aligned with its spiritual energy source. In general, and specifically in the human being. When that will be repaired, and we'll fix those punctures, tikkun elam, we'll fix it and repair it and refine it, then the two can go on live forever. So therefore, illness, disease has no place. That was the gist of it. After the finish of the talk, one doctor got up, one of the hosts said, beautiful talk, and we really appreciate it. But I want to know, what will we be doing as doctors once Mashiach comes? What happens with all our skills, everything we were trained to do? So after the prerequisite joke, maybe that's why doctors charge so much in order to save for a long retirement, I said, on the contrary, doctors will be doing the most noble thing of all. Instead of having to deal with the pain and suffering of illness and disease and infection, and toxins, and ultimately death, God forbid, you'll be teaching the rest of the world, from the flesh we behold God, how the human flesh, the human anatomy, human biology, human chemistry, human neurology, the list goes on, teaches us secrets and mysteries of the divine, because we were created in the divine image. Astronomers will do the same through the laws of astro- through the laws of astronomy. Physics will do the same. Physicists will do it through physics. We will see the Aleph, as the Rebbe explains. You put the Aleph in Gela, in Achrei Meiskudeshin, the Sikh of Achrei Meiskudeshin, Tavshin and Al. The Rebbe was addressing the question. People were writing to him that they're they're very afraid the Mashiach is going to come. What will happen with our equity, with our furniture, with everything we built up? So the Rebbe said, nothing to be afraid of. Geula is not diminishing anything. It's Gela with an Aleph. You have everything from Gela, but you'll add the Aleph. Alufish Shalelam. Ardus. That you'll see within everything you have that it's only a means toward a divine expression. This is something each of us can do right now. We're not talking about miracles. We can't bring Tchis HaMesim. We can't rebuild the Beis HaMikdash without God. We can't eradicate Ruch HaTumah Min HaOretz. Avim Min But we can is live lives Firstly, think and visualize a life of Gula. Live that way as best of our ability. Okay, in addition to that, I want to refer you to episodes 22 and 89. And uh, let's move to the next question. What is the Rebbe's opinion on bariatric surgery and laser surgery? How are you? I would like to talk with you today about bariatric surgery to make the stomach smaller for diet reasons and laser surgery for the eyes so that one shouldn't have to wear glasses. I have a relative who did the bariatric surgery, and every time he's, he overeats, he has to vomit. I'm sorry for reading it literally, but that's what he writes here. I think that today, especially our younger generation, don't want to work hard and want everything instantly. So if you want to be thin, you just get the surgery and that's it. I think the whole idea comes from secular culture, and perhaps this is a prohibition of meaning not to follow the, the law, to follow the cultures and the, the customs of the, the, the secular world. 
As far as I heard from stories of the Rebbe, that the Rebbe's opinion was that surgery should be done only as a last resort. So if you could share what Halacha says about this topic and what should be the Rebbe's approach on these surgeries. Okay, good question, so let me respond. And I did actually ask, speak to more than one Rav about this, just because I don't really speak about halachic issues, but here there's a little overlap of Ashkofa Halacha, the Rebbe's position. So number one, there's a letter from the Rebbe dated the 8th of Kislev, Tov Shemem Gimel. That would be 1982. It's printed in Lekut volume 36, page 309. The Rebbe says, L'pela ha-shayla, al-istabeich b'nituach. L'pela, it's a wonder to me, the question that you're asking and struggling whether you should have the surgery about low, uh, uh, slow, uh, diminishing your stomach. Which, of course, includes, doesn't say, of course, he says, the, con- the results, the consequences are unclear what that will result and all that will come, that all the, uh, it will entail, the chulu. Exclamation point. And the only reason you're doing the surgery is because you are overweight. But the meaning the physical, the, the, the physically overweight, obese. Or mufrach, the rabbi concludes. Completely unacceptable, completely um, not, should, should not be done. Mufrach. Mufrach means you should definitely not do it. Absolutely, unequivocally not do it. So there you have from the Rebbe. Now you could say that's 1982, and today we live in a different type of surgeries, possible. But we have to also include, um, there may be other answers. If anybody has answers on this topic, I would do, as, I, as I ask very often, please send them, and I'll make it public and make sure everybody can hear it. But I would continue and take this a step further. In generally speaking, you see the Rebbe's approach to things is two conditions. The, generally speaking, it's only last resort and only if, there's a, if it's a health threat. To do things for cosmetic purposes, in most cases that I've seen, maybe in all cases, I know there's a letter about earrings, but there it's not, it's not surgery, even though it may cause some pain, but the Rebbe speaks about wearing earrings. But as far as surgery goes, if it's just for cosmetic purposes, the Rebbe is always against, against any type of intrusive factors because you don't know what other consequences come, come from it. Not everything's been tested. The same that Rebbe take is attitude to medication. And we talked about sonograms a while back. And we'll soon talk about um, eye surgery and uh, laser surgery and contacts and so on. This is a pr- pretty much a general principle from the Rebbe that for cosmetic purposes, wh- why do something like this? You don't know all the consequences. Even not cosmetic purposes, if it's still trial and we don't know all the aspects and consequences as well, the Rebbe is also very hesitant. Now, obviously, if it's Pekoach Nefesh, you're talking about emergencies, or you're dealing with a health situation and many doctors, and it has already been proven over time, the Rebbe writes that about antibiotics, for example, then he says it's already been doing, but many do it, the Rebbe goes and says yes. But it's not really based, as, I would not call this a divine edict from the Rebbe, it's more of a common sense approach based on Teda, that firstly the human body is God's property, that's why you're not allowed to mutilate yourself. You can't just say, hey, it's my body, I can do whatever I want. It's a holy piece of property. You have to take care of it. So to do things for cosmetic purposes, no, and even for other purposes that may be more than that, it has to be really established. And if not that, that's why it's important to have doctors and have mumchim, rabbonim, and so on. I was also made aware that there is a tzitz uh, al which is a tshuva from uh, one of the chreinim, um, from later generations, Chelik volume 11, Simen Memtes, against all type of plastic surgery, 
because it's a begeder chevel ba'atzme, meaning self-mutilation. This is interesting as well. But there are this, I will say, there are other opinions. I do not base on what I'm saying here. I'm just bringing it into the picture here. Ask a qualified rabbi and a mashpia to make sure that anything is being done properly. I'm sharing here with, I have the information from the Reb. As far as laser surgery, I've not been able to find anything about laser, optic laser surgery, meaning laser surgery they do on eyes, either because it wasn't yet available before Gimel Tamas, or I just didn't see such an answer. But we do have from the Rebbe contact lenses that the mosquitoes, the number of mosquitoes, not one, only one, a few secretaries say the Rebbe was very much against. Again, it's intrusive in the sense of placing a lens inside the eye. Some say there are exceptions, whether it's soft lenses, hard lenses. We'll talk about that another time. But if that's the case, laser surgery is even more so. And it is for cosmetic reasons, not for life and death reasons, not for health reasons. So laser surgery is more than just contact. So I would say, venture to say, that would probably be that I would be hesitant before agreeing and maybe be unequivocally against it as well. But here again, I ask people for giving me any type of information, answers, or uh, writings or manuscripts that the Rebbe has on this topic. Okay, with that, we shall move forward. Next question. What to tell children about an absentee father? Thank you so much for your weekly webcasts. As a busy mother, I only wish I made more time to listen to, this cla- to your class every week, so I apologize in advance if these issues have been addressed already. I'm a mother of a number of young children, and unfortunately, as it turns out, I have been raising them on my own for the past few years. My youngest child only knows her father as a figure on a screen. We have been separated for over three years, and I'm still waiting for a get. Amongst many issues and questions I have, this one is regarding the children. Their father has been living overseas for the last few years and has chosen not to come back to visit the kids at all. He gives his reasons and blames me and my family while claiming he loves the kids and misses them immensely. As a mother, my heart breaks for my kids as I see them clearly suffering a loss of relationship that didn't have to happen as a result of the marriage breakdown. We often discuss Hashem's plan and how we don't understand why people and why Hashem chose them to be born into a situation where their parents' marriage wasn't going to last. They ask me why. Why should they have to feel this pain of having a parent who is Baruch Hashem alive and well yet has abandoned them in a physical sense? Why does he say he loves them so much and he wishes he could visit them yet he still chooses to put his own self first and stays across the ocean? I honestly often wish I could transform an abusive and unhealthy marriage just to mend my children's broken hearts. As much as I know they are better off in a healthy and stable home with one parent, I I still wish I could fix it and heal our pain and challenges. Do you have any advice for myself to be more at peace with the life I am leading and accepting that this is truly Hashem's will, not my choice? How do I know that this is truly the right thing as a chassid where marriage and a complete home are the ideal? And advice in answering my children when I see them pained as a result of their absentee relationship with their father. Many thanks and may we only share good news in the future. All the best. Heart-wrenching letter, but as... We do, Chassidus addresses everything, Tata addresses everything, so we also address some of the more painful situations. As always, I have to begin with a disclaimer. I don't know all the details, I don't know all the aspects of this, I don't know the children, I don't know all the circumstances. So therefore, whatever I say is limited, as well as the fact that case by case, every situation is different and has to be addressed in its unique way. But with that said, what we can state in general terms, 
And these are things that are either directly from letters and approaches the Rebbe takes, or the general common sense based on Teir and And that is that, like any challenging situation, just like I want to compare it, just like if a parent dies prematurely, we still have difficult, how do you explain that to children? Why God would allow that? I understand this is a very different situation, but my point is we have many situations that are very difficult to explain. Here, in a way it's worse, because you could say it's not God. It's a human being making a choice. And what will the children come away with? Why would like, what, like, you know, they come away feeling, are we not loved? Is there something? So I believe, however, that in the context of things that we don't have control over, and I'm assuming there's no control over this because it's up to the father, is what a mother can do is provide the children with tools to deal with situations that are not always understandable. That's why I'm comparing it with other tragic situations. That we have to realize there's some things that happen that don't reflect on us, and we have to become stronger people. Basically, things saying like, you know, we're all human beings and we make our mistakes. But that doesn't mean we have to be victims of those mistakes. We grow through them. You know, I would look for excuses. I would not try to make excuses for their father. I would not try to uh, minimize it. Basically, I would say, yes, every person needs a father. And right now, for whatever reason, connect with him online or connect with him in, and so on. If you could persuade their father to see the children, obviously I would do everything possible to do so. It appears from this letter that, he's, that there's a healthy relationship. It's not like he's away because of unhealthy reasons, meaning that he's abusive or something like that to the children. But as far as the children go, you could pour love on. You really cannot fill that void. Every child deserves a parent, a father or a mother. And you have to just build that strength in saying we don't understand all the mysteries of why people do things. We just hope that we try to minimize hurting another person. Your father loves you deeply. And the day will come when he will be aware and understand that he needs to come see you. And I mean, I really don't have deeper words to say than that because I'm not going to, again, find excuses and I'm not going to minimize it. But it's about digging deeper and finding greater strengths. And the fact is, if you take a healthy attitude like that, you can give those strengths to your children. They may not have an answer and they may always have this wound, but they will have the resilience and the strength that they built from it. The last thing you want is to create bitterness and reinforce bitterness and anger and demoralization. What you want to say, this is we don't understand, we don't know, but we will become stronger people as a result. Let's do things together. You compensate in every possible way. It'll never fill the void completely, but you do whatever you can healthy, and God helps to bring more health into the picture. When you come, you take an initiative like that, God helps. That's what I have to say. I'm sure there's more to say, but, um, and I wish I could speak about it personally, because I think it would be a lot easier, more compassionate, and more empathetic to be able to speak personally. But since this is the forum, I wanted to share these words. You as a mother, it's also extremely sad, and you have to dig deeper and find greater strengths. I've seen it possible. I've seen people come out of situations like this much stronger. I've seen people come out much weaker. But we have a choice. We have a choice. Remember, the things that we do not control is not up to us. But the things we do control, we can choose to not behave in ways that are just reacting to those negative things that we can't control. Which means to build that strength, to focus it, and to keep it going in a positive way. And of course, God should bless you and your children to have that strength. And maybe the father should have Yara Allah Ruch Mamaram. They should have the wisdom to understand how he can have a relationship with his children and the damage done when he's not around. For whatever reason, he feels he can't be around. I will also say finally one thing, you know, if it comes to divorce, these are also challenges. What do you tell your children? And that's even when a father does show up. 
What do you tell your children? But we have to remember another final thing I want to say is that the absenteeism of a parent is reflective of the absenteeism sometimes of God. In a way also, it's like a Baal Shaholach Medina Sayyam. Medrash brings that example. That God and the Jewish people were married in Matan Teda, consummated in the Mishkan, the Besamidish, as we discussed, and then God went Medina Sayyam. The Rebbe once, I remember in a Sikh, I don't remember exactly which Fabrengan, but the Rebbe was crying and saying, and when, the, and when finally the Gula comes and the Baal returns, he'll be shocked to see that the Jews, the wife, was still waiting for him. Thousands of years later. So you could say this is a muscle that can also be also a source of strength to realize sometimes the father hides from the children as the muscle, the famous muscle Chassidus gives. And sometimes the hiding is so deep in order to bring out the greater strengths and the, the famous Tu B'Shvat Tov Shalom Ates And then again, Hashayin Rabbah Mem Dalad where the Rebbe spoke and this child seeks and looks. Zonti Gezucht, Monti Gezucht, Dinsti Gezucht. Sunday he's seeking Monday is searching for the father. Tuesday, how much? What's the vifl dashir? Rebbe said then the expression is shining Rabbi, vifl dashir. What's the limit to have for your taivin, the savakaj baruch? The Rebbe then said, amidst his tears, the only way to explain it perhaps is because God wants us to cry with an emes. And that can only be if it's complete concealment. Let me make it very clear this is not a justification in any way or form of a father not preparing to his children. I'm just saying, what can you teach your children what to learn from it? We have the situation collectively. And that can only help us build the strengths and do what we have to do. Okay. Next question is lost opportunities. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, your classes have helped me very much, but one thing I can't seem to resolve, I'll just go back the episode 65 and 66 actually address the issue of divorce and how to deal with that with children. So that's a good cross-reference for that topic. Okay, back, lost opportunities. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, your classes have helped me very much, very, very much. But one thing I can't seem to resolve is what I'm writing to you about in hopes that you might address the subject with your signature compassion, intelligence, and care. It's possible that others may share my feelings. And what would be even better would be if someone could be spared my experience. I came of age in the late 60s and 70s amidst all that social upheaval. In addition to the external turmoil, my parents divorced and our family crumbled apart. Without parental supervision or guidance, I drifted along on the waves of the times. I won't go into detail since you remember the popular culture of those days. It was a free-for-all, non-stop party. When the party ended, I discovered life, real life had passed me by. Fast forward to today. Somehow through God's kindness, I found Chabad and Chassidus. I study, learn, go to shul, keep Shabbos, do mitzvahs. Baruch Hashem, I have been given a second chance to have children in my life by helping at the Gan preschool and by teaching Yiddishkeit to those whose paths cross mine. So what is the problem? I have this deep sadness about my misspent youth, about my lost opportunities. I feel heartbroken when I am surrounded by families in shul. I am angry that the culture by which I was completely influenced was anti-marriage and anti-children. I see parents help guide their young sons and daughters into beautiful life, into beautiful lifelong love, and I am filled with regret. I see myself in the, young, in the young mothers, the mother I could have and should have been if everything had been completely different. If you could talk about this, maybe you could help others. At one age, as one ages, one looks back. Hindsight is twenty twenty. they say. 
It's not easy to transition. It's not easy to transition from middle age to whatever sixty-two is, especially if you're part of that endless youth generation. I'm grateful for my Chabad family, or I would be truly alone. Thank you for all you do and give. Shalom. Well, the key thing to know is nothing is ever lost. We do not, as Jews, believe in loss. We believe that some opportunities just take on different shapes. And when one thing is perhaps lost, something else comes to replace it. This is true in physical handicaps. It's true in spiritual. It's true in life situations. Some people, God forbid, could not, God did not bless them the ability to have children. Some people, God did not bless them with other opportunities. But for everything taken, something else is given. Because a good God will not deprive people from fulfilling their mission and calling. Will we ever understand why the Rebbe and the Rebbeson had no children? No. But what did the Rebbe do? He created more children than anyone else has. All the children. Educating people, transforming them. Is that a compensation? It's called compensation. But you do not become, as I spoke in the, to the previous questioner, we don't become demoralized. And we're not victims of circumstances. So I'm not going to go ahead and say to you, no, the opportunities were not lost. Yes, that opportunity was lost, but you are not lost. You're not defined by your things that happened to you in your life. That's the bottom line. Because as I said before, Nishamash and Always remember, we must always remember that. And I know it's easy for me to talk because I'm not in your shoes. But we all have things that we did not necessarily were able to zeich or merit to get. So you have to look at what you have. And remember, your spirit always remains divine. You have tremendous things to give. Will there always be a wound, a vacuum, a void due to something? Perhaps. But you can fill the void with many other good things. And that has to be the focus. So I am not going to go into the mysteries of God's ways why you were born into such a family and such a culture and why someone else was born in a family where they younger realize what the purpose is and be able to get married and have children and do everything you so feel you've missed? I don't know the answer to that. It's God's ways. Why did he put one child in a family like that and one child in a family like that? We don't know. But one thing we know, everyone has tremendous opportunities. And that may come sometimes, yes, some things that we feel that sad about. But not sad is not depressed, as the Al-Tareb explains in Tanya. Sad is a motivator. It means, okay, let me do what I can to see what other skills and resources I have that I'm not using. And maybe that void actually reveals to you strengths that you would never have revealed had you had that blessing. That's how we have to think. And that's an attitude that you have to be around people who think that way. And you have to have that same attitude. And that's why we learn Chassidus. And we learn about what God wants of us. And we learn about our soul. And we learn about there's always more opportunities. Everybody in life has suffered in some way. But there's always more opportunities. And you have to have, diversify. You have to have your eggs in more than one basket. As the Friedrich Rebbe said with the gun pointed to his head, that this toy can frighten someone that has one world and many gods, but not someone who has one god and many worlds or two worlds. We have many worlds. One thing is missing, we have something else. And that does not, again, explain it, but it means that's how our mindset is. That's how we think and that's how we feel. My heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to anyone that has these type of challenges. I feel honored and humbled to be able to be a platform to read this. I really actually am sad, not just saddened by the story, but feel almost like in awe that people share their sacred spaces in this fashion. And I really think this platform, to be able to take this 
And not always find an answer, but find direction and guidance. How to navigate is itself an unbelievable force and power. And that's what we Jews have done for thousands of years collectively and individually. Find people that are empowering. Find projects and activities that feed your soul, that nourish you, that are aligned with your talents. I see you do some things of that nature, but even more so. And, and just become overwhelmed in a positive way with a surge and a flood of good activities that just keep your mind in a place of positive stuff so there's not much time to think about that which is negative. And that you find in many answers from the Reb. Okay. There's a bunch of follow-ups. I see time. I, you know, usually time is our, I don't want to say our enemy. Time is our challenge. But I will read one or two follow-ups and then do the Chassidus question. So firstly, home birthing. Let's start with home birthing because I addressed it last week, episode 204. And I spoke about, does anybody have, I'd said, I didn't find an answer from directors from the Rebbe. So two things were given to me in my direction. Let's start with the first thing. First thing is in Tavshin Mem Zayin, in the Sikha, when Yutas Kislev Tavshin Mem Zayin, Muge, edited by the Rebbe, printed in Sefer HaSikhah, Tavshin Mem Zayin, page 146. The Rebbe speaks there about how an earlier generation, about Shira Mailas, that after children are born, you put up Shira Mailas and different Kameas and different letters and different things we post for the Brachas and to create Dusha around the child. So the Rebbe says, in earlier generations, children were born at home, so it was done right away. Today, this is the Rebbe's words, they were, in the early generations, women would give birth in their homes with the help of a midwife. And therefore, everybody did this custom right away when the birth was born, because they were home. But today, for, whatever, for, for health reasons, women give birth in Beisad of Fua, meaning in hospitals, Davke. The male, sometimes they wait to put up the shir mouth till they get home, and they don't realize they should do it right away. And the Rebbe goes on to encourage that it should be done, and the, the doctors will agree, and the hospital will agree, especially it will help the spirit of the mother and the child, and so on. You could look up the sikha. But here clearly the Rebbe says, And the male, this has then the heros, rapi rapi mekan. From here we learn that you listen to the, with the permission for a refil rapis, so you follow the doctors, and doctors saying to be give birth in the hospital. The Rebbe, of course, the base of four was the Rebbe's unique thing, not to call base chelim. It's another discussion. That's there. But does this mean that you can't give birth at home? No. He's saying the minute it became for health reasons, it's not a psak, it's not definite. As a matter of fact, and this is the second note came my way, there was a Rav in Tzfas, who gave out a directive that, you're not, that for the women in his community that they can't give birth, they can't home birth. And later he heard that the Rebbe did permit it in, in different situations, given situations. So he asked the Rebbe what to do now. It's a long answer. If you want to get it, please email us at meaningflife.com slash mylife. In the forums, give us your email address. I'll send you a copy of the answer, even the manuscript of the Rebbe's writing. It's a long answer. I'm not going to read the whole answer, what to do in a situation. The Rebbe talked once you already gave the answer. But at the end, the Rebbe says, in New York, many yelders, many, many people give birth at home. And with the agreement, meaning the Rabbanim have agreed to it, the Rebbe says, from your letter it appears there may be a difference in conditions in your city. Only somebody on, on site can make the determination. So here clearly the Rebbe is like, you could see leaning against making an Isra because it's done. But then he goes on how to exactly he should deal with it. Essentially the Rebbe is not going to give a psak. 
But you see from this that it's not forbidden. And the Rebbe was not, against, was not against forbidding it. If it's, a doctor says you should give birth, in other words, let's say there's a, a certain, certain, a certain um, circumstances that a doctor says, you know, that the child is at risk or other given situations, God forbid. Clearly, why, why risk more and stay, and stay at home? But if a condition is that there's not risk like that, and doctors, and Rav says it's fine, so he would say it's possible. Again, I'm not reading more than I want to read. I'm giving you the sources so you can make the determination. That's all I can say and add to this discussion. Okay. And the, when the person who sent me this, one of them wrote, Hello, Rabbi Jacobson, and thank you for your wonderful lectures and articles. I'm sure you know that many people, including some in our family, enjoy them and benefit from them tremendously. You asked for any letters of the Rebbe on the topic of home birth. Here's one. I have more details about it if you want. And I was sent this. Maybe I will find out more details and I'll share with you. There are other follow-up questions, but due to the time, I will just talk about a few. Um, let me see. I'll take two more and then I'll go to the Chassidus question. There was, of course, continued discussion about the topic that we addressed in episodes 202, 203, and 204 about shaming someone for their crimes. But I think I really exhausted the topic pretty extensively. You can go back and listen to it. I'm not, I think all the angles were covered. And, uh, and just wanted to make that point. And if we have to address it again, hopefully we don't have to address it because it will be completely eradicated from this world. We will. But right now, there's nothing really more for me to add. And I don't want to get into any type of polemics about it. So that will suffice. And let us now go to one more question, which was one I wanted to already address a number of times, but again, due to time. So here, the question was God's goodness. Follow up to the Chassidus question of episodes 201 and 202. How do we know that when good is happening in our life, that is good from God's graciousness and kindness, or as discussed in Tanya about God giving the wicked good in this world as a way of cashing out their merits so they don't get rewarded in the world to come. Thanks for explaining the previous question so eloquently. Okay, so this is, you can say, a type of supplement to what we discussed already, different angles about God's goodness, which I discussed why we pray for God's goodness, even though the Alter Rebbe explains that in, sometimes in the negative, there's even chesadim nalamim, chesadim nestadim, hidden kindness, and different angles of this. This is a question, another detail, which I, didn't, I don't believe I addressed, and I'll address it now. And that is, how do we know, like it says in some places, that sometimes you get good in Elam Hazah, so God so-called pays the Rishayim, so the Elam Haba, they don't have to get it. Maybe that's the good. Every Jew is considered to be innocent until proven guilty. So to go ahead and, a person can't go ahead and say, you know what, I'm a wicked person, and maybe... I'm getting goodness in this world in order not to get. So that's the first thing. Our attitude has to be if you're getting goodness in this world is because you deserve it and it's a blessing. And goodness sometimes is also a reward. It's not just a uh, type of preparing you for punishment. As the Rambam explains, goodness in this life, health, parnasa, peace of mind, helps us serve God in peace. So that's what we have to assume. The determination if somebody's getting good because they're Russia, I believe, is not in our domain. That's up to God. We're told about it to understand sometimes. The question when you see, why do you see that the path of wicked people is successful? Why the good, why the wicked prosper? So that's one of the explanations. But to go apply that to ourselves or to anyone who's being blessed and say maybe the blessing is coming, that's not our approach. So there is the element, but sometimes you'll see a wicked person being given some gifts for that short period of time. 
in order to fulfill that, whatever they deserve. But it's not something I believe we have the ability to go ahead and determine in each case. So we can just assume this. When there's good, it's good that you deserve. Enjoy it. Don't take it for granted. And be humble. Be humbled by all the kindness. And use every goodness to be able to show God that you deserve it and you earned it by saying that I'm not taking it for granted and feel entitled, but I will use it to be able to add, increase in serving God, Teirah, mitzvahs, spreading Yiddishkeit, spreading Chassidus, and God will see that. He'll only give you with more blessings and more goodness. When it comes to Elam Haba, both in the Gan Eden and in L'Osad Lovi, Mashiach's coming, there'll be even more goodness for everybody. Got to go around, Ad Bli Dai, without any limits. Okay. There were a few more follow-ups, but I will address those next week. That's about one, two, three. Three more follow-ups. Let me address the Chassidus question now. Is the world of thought more real than the world of action? A person is found in the place where his thoughts are. It's a very strong statement. When you think about something, it's as if you're there. Hi, Rabbi Simon. Thank you for your time yesterday in answering some of my questions. It's someone I met in Shul. I had asked you about the concept that a person is found in the place where his thoughts are. The question was a bit deeper, as were some of my other questions. Here's what I was asking. Is it safe to assume that the world of machshava, the world of thought, is more real than the world of Maisa action based on the following? The Rambam says in the guide for the perplexed that the Malachim didn't visit Avram in this world, the angels didn't visit Abraham in this world, but in another world, in a world that's more real than ours, it's like in a spiritual realm. We know from Chassidus that many many of the, the Agadah, which is like the legends, the Agadah, the stories in the Gemara, are stories that exist in other parts of, say, the Shtalshus, and other parts of the cosmic order, but many, not, but many do not exist in our physical world. They're like basically metaphors. Again, it doesn't mean the stories aren't real. They could perhaps be more real than the reality we think we know on those levels. This is similar to the examples Mishle Shlema, King, the Sol- King Solomon's exa- uh, metaphors, that the deeper the layer you go, example, honey versus sweet nigan versus a sweet seichel, the more refined the concept is. After all, the higher you go in Erein Sof, the divine infinite light, the closer you get to the ultimate truth. We know that Shemun Esrei is... Bech- we know that Shemun Esrei, which is Amida, we do quietly, because the world of Malachim, the world of angels, and Elam Amis and the world of truth doesn't consist of expression in words and in action. Everything operates in thought in the next world. Even more so, as you go from one level in the cosmic order to the next, it's considered that like thought compared to speech. In other words, the higher the level, the more thought compared to speech, which is more expressive to the world below it. To sum up, the more able something is, the more refined something is, the more it represents truth. Digital information may be more real than a physical item. Or some say... Some may say that atoms are purely just that, digital info. Everything was done with wisdom of God. So would that mean that even though I'm sitting in my home now, typing this email, but since I'm thinking about our conversation from Shabbos, I'm more in 770 than in my home. I understand on a physical level it is not so, but my question is, what is more real? We know our world is complete sheker, false. And we're being deceived every second by the shell of klippah by the shell of, right, the shell of the, of the, the husks. 
This has recently been confirmed by science with the veil truth theory. It's poss- impossible to know all the moving pieces since there's an infinite amount of missing, missing blocks that we can never know about. Would you say that by Matan Teir, God showed us the real reality, and that's why Parch and Nishmosen, that's why their souls expired. Thanks. I understand that our world could be made more real than all the other worlds because of God wanting to have a home in this world, and by doing a mitzvah and learning Torah, you have God himself, so Yeshaniv converts back to Yeshamiti, meaning the physical reality converts back to the ultimate reality. Okay, very good question. My response is quite direct and simple. When you talk about reality, it's a very big question, what is reality? God, we know, is the ultimate reality, and this world is a created reality. So clearly, sometimes it's not because we see it with our eyes and ears and taste, touch, and smell, meaning our senses that make something real. There are many things we don't experience with our senses. So when you say reality, depending what you mean by reality. If you're talking about reality based on senses, you have to define the tools. The tools of the senses, reality is what it sees, hears, tastes, touches, tastes, touches, and smells. The reality of the mind, it relates to the reality of ideas. The reality of the heart relates to the emotions, to love, things that are not tangible and are not sensory. You talk about the reality of Atsilis, then you need spiritual tools. The reality of Elokus and higher levels, you need even more spiritual ones. It all comes down to a microscope can see what it can see. But it cannot see and experience something which is beyond those tools and instruments. When you talk about ultimate reality, yes, the higher the level, the more real it is. And the way the more concealed, the less real it is. But here's a key point. Chassidus asks the question, how do we know existence is real and not an illusion? And it gives two proofs. One of them is because the Torah says so. God said he created the world. The second reason is because there's a halacha difference between magic and real kishof. You can actually change something in reality. If everything is an illusion, it's all illusion. It's all an illusionist. It's all magic. The point is that God gives reality reality. In that sense, this physical world, like you pointed out, is real because God wants it to be real. Is there such a thing as dimyanus? Illusions? Yes. Nisyanus, as a dimyan. Avram Avinu saw water, and there was no real water there. But besides those... There's reality is reality. Who defines reality? It's God defines reality. What is the ultimate reality? Amitis amitsius in the language of the Rambam. Amitis imotse. An existence that's mitsius imatsmuse. That must exist. Not optional. An existence that, so to speak, is, comes from its own self. Its justification is because it is what it is. Eyyashayya. That's the ultimate reality. Everything else is optional. The world didn't have to exist. So Chesidus says it's not real in that sense. But it's real because God put it here. So God gives it that reality. So I don't know, really, it's really a matter of apples and oranges. To say thought is more real than action, yes, in a certain way, it has power. But to say that action doesn't have reality, in the world of action, action is more important. You can't think about a mitzvah. You have to do the mitzvah. On the other hand, Makshava has a reality because it shapes and defines how action will be done. So I really think it's just a matter of defining what reality is. You can look in the Hemshech Tzadik Dalad from the Friedrich Rebbe. It's printed in the Sefer by Marim Tavshin Yudalov, where he talks at length about this, what is reality, MS, this Fas MS, MS Lamite, and the reality of the physical, the reality of the spiritual. Bottom line is that the ultimate reality is only Elokus, Mamish, Atzmus. Ambitis Hamitzis, we call it. Sometimes mechuyev hametzius must be mitzusim atzmusei mitzius as the Alter Rebbe says in Simen Chaf and Agerus Akedish 
Tzuse that comes from within itself, meaning doesn't not, nothing else puts it there. It itself justifies itself. And then Mitzvah is built in Mitzvah Nimtza, another expression used, a, a non-existential existence. That's ultimate reality. But that doesn't mean God did not create other dimensions because ultimate reality is not just defined and limited to that, just like Hashem Sheyeshle, the power to create Bligvul, just like God can create infinity, can create finite. And the finite is a true reality as well. Obviously, the, the goal is to unite them all together where reality, all the realities become meshed together and we can experience it on many multidimensional ways. Okay, with that, let me conclude. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 205. Again, dedicated in honor of Brena Baschana, please partner with us and help us continue this and make it expand through your sponsorship by going to meaningfullife.com slash sponsorship. Everyone should have a Freilich and Chedesh Nissen. As the month comes up, a Chedesh Agu'ula, Benissen Niglu, Benissen Asin Ligoel. I will see you next Sunday, every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Have a blessed week.